0: Welcome to the Global Development Review podcast. I'm Jafar Latif Najar. My guest in this episode is Dr. Christopher L. Carter. Dr. Chris is an academy scholar at Harvard, Academy for International and Area Studies at Harvard University. He also is a research associate at Center on the Politics of Development at University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Chris is working on a book project which examines the emergence as well as political and social effects of indigenous autonomy in the Americas. He won 2020 APSA Best Field Work Award and he has published and have been working on local governance in Latin Americas. He also worked on gig economy labor in the United States. Dr. Chris received his PhD in political science from University of California, Berkeley and has completed his master's in Latin American Studies at the University of Cambridge as a Cambridge Get Scholar. In this episode, Dr. Chris will share about his work, his theory of resource extraction and help us to understand indigenous state relations in Latin Americas. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Chris, thank you very much for accepting my invitation and welcome to global development review podcast it's a pleasure to have you here and and learn from your work. I, I just have a look on your work and uh, your primarily focus is on you know indigenous communities and uh, I would like to start this discussion. Could you please tell us who are the indigenous communities in America and what is their cultural or historical details?
1: Well first and foremost thank you so much Jaffer for, for inviting me today to discuss what I think are a lot of really important issues that often aren't necessarily treated uh systematically or sort of in a big picture way. Um, so so I'm really excited to start this conversation. And a lot of these issues are ones that I've been thinking about and discussing uh, during my interviews and field work in Indigenous communities. Um, And sort of in that process, one major thing I've learned is that it's a lot easier to generalize around government behavior toward indigenous communities than around indigenous community responses to the government. Um, There's so much heterogeneity, which I think we'll have a chance to sort of discuss at a very superficial level today, but I think is also just really important to preface that I'll probably be making certain generalizations just due to the fact that I'm a political scientist and that's sort of my training. Um, but the reality is communities are extraordinarily diverse and have very different experiences and ideas and demands, in fact. Um, as such, I'm probably not going to cover the full nuance and complexity of these communities, but but I'm going to do my best to give at least an overview. Uh, so, so with respect to your question, who are indigenous groups, it's an extraordinarily difficult question, and there's a lot of debate over whether we should think of Indigenous groups based on an objective categorization in which it's people who maintain certain customs or traditions or continue to speak an Indigenous language, or whether we should rely on subjective measures in which people are asked whether or not they identify as Indigenous. So it's a really, really tough question about, you know, which communities are Indigenous or not, and depending on the definition you use, you may get... You know, anywhere in a country like Bolivia, from 40% to 80% of the country can be Indigenous, depending on what measures you use. Um, so for now, I'm just going to use a very rough definition, which are, you know, Indigenous groups are the, pre, are the descendants of the pre-colonial inhabitants, in this case, of America. And I use the word America broadly to apply to both North and South America as a single continent. And of course, the term indigenous itself is somewhat misleading um, because it applies to you know, a variety of groups that are tribal, kinship, or communal groups, which in cases like sub-Saharan Africa, we tend to disaggregate individual and ethnic groups. In the case of indigenous groups in the Americas, often we just lump together a bunch of very diverse groups and called them indigenous just because they were the pre-colonial inhabitants of the continent. Yeah, that's not to say the indigenous identity isn't important for those who identify as indigenous, right? In some ways, it's become a strategic way to facilitate coordination across diverse groups that otherwise would have very little in common. Um, So it's not to say indigenous isn't an important identity. It's just a very complicated identity. Um, So we can think of this, you know, if if a small Quechua community in the Andes wants to mobilize against the government, they're probably not going to have a lot of luck. But if they mobilize with Aymara communities or neighboring Quechua communities and form a larger group of indigenous individuals, um, they have a greater chance of getting the things they want. Um, So the word indigenous is extraordinarily sort of contested. In many ways, it's been externally imposed. Um, but like many things we'll talk about today, indigenous groups have found a way to use these, these negative things that have often been imposed on them in ways that, that increase their long-term political power. And we can see that just with the term indigenous. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, so, so sort of like thinking about what might unite these diverse pop- populations together, aside from just this external category of indigenous, Of course we have common experiences at the hand of the state, largely common experiences of things like disease, genocide, sustained attempts at cultural assimilation, extraction of natural resources, violence, exclusion from politics and and markets. and this, this common experience of marginalization and systematic destruction has really eroded many of the resources that, that the communities we call indigenous might have. Mm-hmm. Um, not just economic resources or natural resources, but political and social resources yes. as well.
0: I will come to the uh, resource extraction. But before that, I just want to know what is actually the political position of indigenous communities in Americas. Yes.
1: Yeah, so, so I think that indigenous communities, uh, th- this is very different based on the specific country. And some of it, of course, is attributable to just demographics, right? In some countries, indigenous groups have a larger, comprise a larger share of the population than in others. Um, And in those countries, we might imagine that they might command more political power. Uh, Historically, though, those groups were more likely to be excluded because the state saw them as a threat. Um, so, So it's a very complicated situation. But Typically, you know, there's not a single legal or political position that that indigenous communities have at this point in the Americas. It actually depends greatly on the on the country itself, um, and a lot of that's determined by by the main sort of problems that the groups face, mm-hmm. of course. And I would say there's sort of four main problems that indigenous communities face in the Americas. Um, the first are economic problems. There's a general struggle for subsistence or just sort of economic survival in a lot of communities. Um, And in those cases, there's an an ongoing question about what subsistence might mean and how to achieve it. Is it best achieved by integrating into markets or using traditional institutions such as communal landholding, communal farming, and to uh, work together outside of the sort of more contemporary institutions of states and markets to guarantee subsistence. So there's a divide within communities about which route they might pursue. Um, I would say the second big problem that communities face is a political one, specifically who should govern communities? Should it be traditional longstanding indigenous institutions Hmm. or should it be the state? So in cases like, Mexico and Bolivia, you have municipal governments that have been replaced by indigenous institutions, Um, while in other cases like Peru and Ecuador, indigenous groups have more often sought representation within the state, and often that involves being governed by non-indigenous authorities. Um, So there's a a struggle there about which which route to pursue in terms of gaining more political power. A third struggle was a territorial which is sort of how do you guarantee your access to territory? Is that best done through communal landholding and the recognition of communal landholding or through private property titles? And that's a question that continues to to be ongoing to this day. Um, And I would say a final struggle is a sociocultural one. There are many institutions and cultural practices that have expressive values for Indigenous communities. The most sort of widely known one is language, And some communities have actually achieved uh, recognition of their longstanding languages in the country, like Bolivia indigenous languages are now recognized as official languages. Um, So so those are just four big struggles that I tend to look at quite a bit That, that, you know, there are others that are sort of more specific to certain regions of the Americas. So for example, in Mexico and Colombia, many indigenous communities have been displaced by civil conflict, particularly in the drug wars. Um, so that's an important thing to, to keep in mind that many communities face, although in, in very specific ways in those countries. And then finally, um, the the idea of resource extraction, natural resource extraction, specifically in the, the rainforest regions and Amazon regions of places yes. like Peru, Ecuador.
0: Yeah, what I was reading about your book, uh, project, you were emphasizing about the indigenous autonomy uh, that is granted by the states. So uh, what does this indigenous autonomy mean then and what actually is this policy? Uh, could you please share about it?
1: Absolutely. So the, the, the reason that I sort of honed in on the concept of autonomy is that indigenous scholars and activists have often said that autonomy is the central demand. Of indigenous communities in the Americas. And that to me seems really important that if you call something the central demand, it's important to think about it, what it is, where it comes from, right? So that's why I really um, honed in on that concept. Uh, in, in terms of what autonomy is, it's very complicated. Uh, once again, because like, as, as we see, these definitions become very complicated and cult, sort of context dependent based on sort of whom you're speaking with and in and, and what context groups are making demands. Um, but for me, I generally draw on Donnelly Mankot's definition of autonomy, which is the construction of a territorial space in which groups can exercise authority without the intervention of non-Indigenous actors, such as private, private actors or the state. Yeah. Um, So it's basically a space. It's different, of course, from a concept like independence or secession, Hmm. in which you would form a separate country. This is a space still existent within the country, but in which groups can exercise control over their land. Um, And as a policy, it basically can take one of two forms. It can be economic, which is generally communal landholding. or I consider communal landholding. Of course, there are other forms of economic autonomy. One can think of gaming rights in the United States. Um, but this authority is really important because it gives communal leaders a lot of power. So it's technically an economic source of autonomy, but it can also be sort of a political source of autonomy. If a community leader controls communal land and who has access to it. They have an enormous amount, of course, of authority because if community members don't apply, uh, don't comply with their dictates, mm. they can revoke access to communal land. So you know, it's, the the lines are a little blurry um, between economic and political autonomy. But political autonomy, just to to be precise about the, the what I'm thinking of, is political autonomy is the recognition of indigenous political institutions. Mm. Which can include the village assemblies, tribal chiefs, um, any sort of long-standing political organization that's that's typically been in charge of a of a
0: community. Okay, so uh, what is actually the response of communities about this autonomy that you are suggesting? Like, do you, do they see it in a positive way, or do they want something else from the states?
1: Yeah, so I think, I think this is a great question, and not just because it's a question that I dealt with a lot in my dissertation. Maybe it is, though. Um, but it, it's, you know, I think in a perfect world or sort of, you know, all else equal, mm-hmm. Indigenous communities would want autonomy. Um, but there are a few reasons why not all have. Um, first, some communities just deeply distrust the state and are hesitant to make any demands on the state. There's a concern that if they demand autonomy or any other state policy, that states will take that as a license to begin interfering in communities. And a lot of the communities that I've interviewed in Peru, and especially Bolivia, where communities are currently deciding whether or not to adopt political autonomy, have expressed this concern. That this is going to make things worse for us because the state's going to come and collect all this information on us and we don't know what they're going to do with it after. Other communities fear autonomy because they think that the state would use autonomy as an excuse not to provide them resources anymore. Um, This is something that in my work I call an autonomy representation dilemma, because many times states will say, okay, we'll give you control over your affairs, but you're also in charge of collecting resources now. And that's, of course, a problem for communities, especially poor communities, because the tax base is really limited. So how are you going to govern effectively if you don't have sufficient resources? So governments have often used autonomy as an excuse to deny communities resources and and other forms of representation. And finally, some communities just don't want autonomy because they see that indigenous institutions as a barrier to state and market integration. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's important not to just assume that all communities want to preserve their longstanding institutions. Um, Many do. I would say the majority do. Um, but some also see them as barriers to, to integration and to future prosperity. Um, and so, so not all indigenous communities want the same thing. They may want to stay together as a community, but they may also want to adapt and change. And therefore, autonomy is not the path they want to follow. They want to follow the state path or the market path more than they want to follow the indigenous path. And you often see this in communities that have already integrated into markets where there's some inequality within the community, and therefore the leaders have certain preferences that might go against the preferences of average members.
0: Yeah, of course there would be power relations within community as well. But uh, I just would like to ask about your work that uh, the, the inspiring work that you are doing, and you are, you are developing a theory of resource extraction. Like that, that's what I learned from your work. So. Um, First of all, how do we understand uh, this theory of resource extraction and especially in context of indigenous communities in Americas and also uh, how state and private actors are involved in it?
1: Absolutely. So so my book project is looking at both sort of the specific demands that communities make. So a minute ago I was talking about how not all communities want (laughs) the same thing. And so I think that's really important. It's something that, you know, I sort of, As a person entering this project with very little previous experience having deep conversations with indigenous community leaders, I sort of just assumed that the literature that said autonomy is the central demand meant that every community (laughs) wants autonomy, and it turned out they did You know, like one of the really eye-opening things to me was that uh, there was this, one of the interesting things that I found when I began this project was I looked at this thing that was called the Indian Reorganization Act, of the United States, which was passed in 1934 under President Franklin Roosevelt, and it was called the Indian New Deal, um, precisely because it was supposed to expand autonomy for indigenous communities and reservations in the United States. In fact, uh, not all communities wanted it, and as I was reading through the debates around the around the uh, the adoption of the of the Indian Reorganization Act. I learned that many communities said that they thought that autonomy would be a bad thing for them. Hmm. And it would just reaffirm a sort of subordinate position of their community to the state. Other communities said, this is really hopeful and we're optimistic. Of course, everyone was a little skeptical. No no reservation in the United States at that point fully trusted the government, I think. Hmm. Um, Everyone had some skepticism. But many expressed real hope and optimism about this bill. Um, and as I said, others roundly rejected. So, so that was sort of the first key I had and first clue I had to saying, okay, well, these communities are a lot more heterogeneous than, you know, I was previously thinking. Um, so that became sort of one of the main ideas of my book is I really want to figure out why communities demand different things and to create sort of a, a way of understanding where communities diverge in their demand making. Um, the second thing I wanted to know is when communities mobilize to actually make demands on the state. So it's not enough just to have a preference. You mm-hmm. want to know how that preference is expressed and when it's expressed in a collective way that might generate some policy change. Um, so that was the second big, big dependent variable. Of, that's the second big dependent variable in mm-hmm. my book. Okay. And, you know, So 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 basically, some communities have demanded indigenous rights like autonomy. Um, Others have demanded individual rights, so things like private property and political representation. Um, Some have been successful in mobilizing for those rights. Others have really struggled to mobilize for those rights. Um, And I argue that we can understand this because of historical experiences with resource extraction, Um, mainly because for most communities, the first exposure to the state was in a very uneven, extractive relationship. Um, in which communities were often exploited by the state. However, state extraction differs in a great number of ways from rural elite extraction, which is another form of extraction. So state-led extraction tends to be systematic, widespread, and it's perpetrated by a single actor. Um, Rural elite extraction, on the other hand, is, is quite different in that it tends to be more opportunistic, and it might affect one or a small number of communities, but it doesn't necessarily affect a large number of communities. And what I argue is that the state-led extraction actually generates a collective response from indigenous communities to resist that extraction. And as such, we see something that other scholars have called a Phoenix effect, in which communities don't simply sort of become atomized as a result of extraction. They actually invest in collective action capacity to resist extraction. And then over the long term, become stronger. So, community responses to extraction can actually enable future demand making. Mm-hmm. Um, and that to me was a, was a pretty interesting way of looking at communities um, because we all know that the direct effects of resource extraction are bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's nothing good that can be said of resource extraction. But the idea that communities respond to that extraction in a way and in a way that enables them to gain long-term political power, I thought was really interesting. And it's something that came up over and over again, both in my interviews and, and the secondary sources that I consulted.
0: How the communities, indigenous communities that you engaged with, are resisting, like, you no know, through through the political participation, through protest, uh, through mobilization, like, exactly what, you know, role they are playing there. So,
1: yeah, so, so maybe I can give an example to... to show this a little bit um one of the main cases in my book was the 1920s road conscription program in peru um and so basically indigenous communities were mobilized on an unpaid basis in very sort of horrible circumstances to work on roads for the government right and they were horribly treated during the entire time it was a bad experience um but one thing that communities did in response was begin mobilizing across communities. So basically instead of before, and even today in many cases, communities are often sort of isolated from each other. And it's not that communities might identify with the neighboring community. In fact, they may see themselves as completely different. They may speak different languages. They may have different cultures. They may have had conflict over land and water. So the experience of extraction actually can bring these otherwise disparate communities together. Mm-hmm. And it can do so just because the communities are facing a common threat. But also think about what happens here. You get the young men from the community removed from their community to work on a road with members of other communities. So now everybody's sort of forming networks and beginning to talk about this common experience and those networks persist even after individuals return to their communities. And so you get collective action against the state. And that's reinforced over time through things like storytelling, dances, sometimes they're even pilgrimages to the work sites by multiple communities. And so there's an initial collective action that emerges, or at least the capacity for a collective action. Another thing we see is that it's often violent in terms of how that collective action capacity is initially employed. So the initial resistance might be you know, violently resisting government officials, making threats on government officials if they dare to enter communities to mobilize people to work on these roads. Um, so, so you see a lot of initial collective action that tends to be violent. Um, Over the long term, that sort of translates into nonviolent collective action in terms of demand making on the state through protests and things Mm -hmm. like that. Um, But a lot of this is sort of historically contingent in the initial response because there was a form of collective action that before you have the right to vote and before you have citizenship rights, Mm -hmm. violence might be the only sort of outlet to resist this extraction effectively because you don't have the right to vote in any Mm -hmm. of these communities, right? So that's... That's an important thing to keep in mind. It's not violence for violence's sake, but in some cases it's the only tool in the the repertoire.
0: Tool of resistance. Exactly. But I also want to know that, you know, how is the local governance practice of indigenous communities, you know, when we talk talk about, because if they are resisting towards the state, so there could be also, you know, self kind of governance system, or it is like a you know governance by the state and they are resisting so i just would like to understand how how is the local level you know strategies i would say are how is the local level and uh, kind of uh, governance structure placed there within the communities because as you are saying that there are different communities there so how do they manage and you know work there together
1: yeah, so I would say there are sort of two levels at which we can think of local governance happening. So, uh, you know, to take the case of Peru, which is in many ways emblematic of a lot of other cases, you have between five and 6,000 indigenous communities, yeah. right? And so, I mean, you've got a lot of local level indigenous communities, and most of them are concentrated in particular areas. So within any given municipality, you could have, you know, one to 100 indigenous communities mm-hmm. within a single municipality. And then you've got, you know, thousands of municipalities in the country. So we're talking here about, you know, local governance operates in sort of a funny way. So within communities, often you have, you know, this is a broad generalization, but often you don't have, you know, the chief or something like Mm. that, like some people might think, you know, it's it's often sort of a local person who's appointed or elected for one to three years And people take turns, often it's younger members of the community who take turns rotating in and out of of leadership positions. Mm -hmm. The true decision-making authority often rests with either a village council or a council of elders. Okay, Okay, so people who have complied with all the the council of elders, and that's where decision-making authority happens. Um, Often, so so I won't say often, but sometimes, uh, these practices exclude women, um, which has been a struggle in the Mexican case. So Mexico is one of the few cases where indigenous groups have been able to replace local governments, municipal governments, with indigenous governments, particularly in the state of Oaxaca. Um, And in that process, there's an ongoing conversation because decisions there are made through a deliberative assembly using direct democracy, so the people in the town come together and they vote on most issues that, that might arise. The problem is in some of those municipalities, women have been excluded from participation, which brings up a concern for the national government, which is if I give autonomy, that means that groups have the decisions of how they should be governed. But well, what happens when that contradicts basic civil, political, and human rights hmm. of other groups, you know, that the state's supposed to guarantee? So so there's some interesting questions that arise. Like that as well in terms of local government mm-hmm. governance arrangements, but most often, any time that that community level governance becomes a formal level of government, like a municipal government, in the case of Peru, Bolivia, Panama, for example, um, you have a negotiation with the state about which practices will be allowed and which won't be allowed, mm-hmm. and sometimes that's a reason in another place where communities decide we're not going to do this because the state's going to veto any meaningful change we might try to.
0: So, um, in a larger context, is if I would say, like, you know, there, there is a governance system at the local level, then there is a central, central state. So, to a person, like, who doesn't have much knowledge about in these communities, so how would you uh, explain, like, I mean in the state and indigenous community relations, actually. Uh, I was looking at your work, and uh, I think you are working on it. I think your PhD project was on indigenous state relations, right? So uh, how how do you explain, like, how do we call it the indigenous and state relation in, in America, particularly in context of Latin America?
1: Yeah, so I think you know i think there's sort of three equilibrium outcomes we can think of very broadly with respect to indigenous state relations the first would be assimilation in which indigenous communities integrate into the state they basically lose many of their cultural economic and political practices and Aspire to or are given, although that's rarely the case, equal citizenship, fully equal citizenship, mm-hmm. so that they're no longer considered a separate group within the state,
0: mm-hmm. um, but
1: are rather equal citizens to, to non-indigenous groups. That's one option. Um, I think the second major equilibrium is exclusion, which is you know historically been probably the most common, sadly. Um, in which indigenous groups are just not given a place in the state at all. Mm. Um, and, you know, we can see this, for example, in contemporary Brazil, where groups are, the interests of indigenous groups are completely ignored. They're treated as at best second-class citizens and their territories and lands, which were supposedly guaranteed have bit just sort of ignored in the government's mm. expropriated resources for private private purposes. Um, Then the third outcome, which I generally think is is sort of maybe the the best outcome, is accommodation, in which states give a little bit, indigenous groups probably give a little bit, and there's some negotiation in which indigenous groups are granted a special place within the state. So autonomy, meaningful autonomy, would fall into that category, right, where the state may not give you full control over territory, but there are some rights that are recognized and indigenous groups are able to um, at least govern economic and maybe even political aspects of society in ways that they weren't able to previously. Um, so that's sort of the best. It's probably also the least common of the of the outcomes that, mm-hmm. that have been observed. Yeah,
0: and also in your opinion, what is the possible way to you know stop or minimize the resource extraction that you were talking about? You know uh, when. Um, what is happening between state and uh, private actors like they're extracting resources from them so is there any possible way to you know minimize that kind of uh, exploitation yeah
1: I mean I think that's probably the the, one of the primary goals of indigenous communities I mean if we say that autonomy is in fact the central demand or at least maybe the the most common demand, if we mm-hmm. want to be a little sort of <laughs> less less strong in, in our statements. Um, the definition of autonomy says a space in which there's inter- no intervention by non-indigenous mm-hmm. actors, right, mm-hmm. which would mean that communities are functionally protected from resource extraction. Yeah. So, of course, something like accommodation is a potential path, but groups may also see assimilation as, as a path, right? So if I have private land ownership, that may give me the rights I need to more effectively defend myself against an actor who's, who's trying to intrude upon my land. And I think, you know, that's, that can be a logic that indigenous communities can adopt as well in terms of, you know, what is the best way that we can defend ourselves from resource extraction? Is it through the sort of integration path or the assimilation path, or is it through the accommodation path? And the problem with the accommodation path is that governments have often reneged on their commitments. Right? They, they've said one thing. One government says one thing, mm-hmm. but then a new government comes in and completely changes the policy yeah. framework. And you had autonomy in one period, and now you have nothing.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so the, the, the problem with the accommodation framework, too, is it's super dependent on who's in office at the time and their willingness to protect it.
0: Now, also, like when we're talking about assimilation, uh, it's just like my my assumption um, that there could be like power relations between state and communities, so maybe uh, that can also you know imbalance the relation of state and indigenous communities.
1: Absolutely, and that's that's historically been the case. That assimilation isn't necessarily this. A negotiated outcome, yeah. right? Where indigenous communities want it and states give it. Yeah. It's more that states want that. They, they basically, historically, it was something like they preferred exclusion than assimilation and mm-hmm. then accommodation as a very last and distant third place, right, mm-hmm. states. Mm-hmm. Um, but states have been often imposed assimilation on indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. The The idea of assimilation, though, has often been the same as exclusion, You know, a lot of the early assimilation policies in the 19th and early 20th centuries were based around this idea that, oh, we need to break up indigenous communal land and privatize it, and then therefore everyone becomes sort of small-holding peasants, and that's good for those communities. In reality, that wasn't the real goal, right? The real goal was to break up the communal land so that private actors could buy up the land, non-indigenous actors could buy up the land. And indigenous groups will be left without any land at all. Um, So even the dividing lines between these three outcomes are really fuzzy because there can be sort of the observed outcome and the intended outcome. Mm -hmm. And those might not always be the same thing. I would say say one thing to maybe hopefully end this on a a positive note, (laughs) which is that I do think there's a path out of, you know, what's historically been a bad equilibrium. I mean, so far I've said, you know, autonomy is a good thing most of the time, but it can also be bad. Hmm. I think that governments have to understand and begin viewing autonomy and representation as complements, not as substitutes for one another, Um, guaranteeing representation while also providing autonomy. And therefore, groups have representation in both ways, uh, ways that allow them to preserve longstanding cultures mm-hmm. and institutions without having to trade off potential access to state resources. So I do think that's important. I also think the other thing that states need to start doing is paying attention to the levels at which autonomy is offered. Often, states will give autonomy to a municipality. Mm-hmm. But as I told you before, municipalities can have five or six communities in them or 100 communities so. in them. Yeah. And what then ensues is often conflict among communities for who gets to be in charge of the government, who gets access to resources. And historically dominant communities or communities with better ties to the government Hmm. lead those governments, those Hmm. autonomous governments, and certain communities continue to experience marginalization. There's conflict in those kinds of things. The government also has to rethink the level at which it offers autonomy, and I think offering it a lower level where communities themselves are governed as opposed to some random, you know, or maybe not so random overarching administrative unit that contains many communities is is in charge of government. But I think it's possible. I hope, you know, we we see some progress in some countries. Um, You know, it's it's great to see, you know, the first indigenous person is the secretary of interior in the United States. Hopefully there's progress on the horizon and hopefully governments, you know, innovate in positive ways going forward to really give indigenous communities what they deserve, which is an equal shot yeah. and uh, an ability to, to to redress historical wrongs that, that the state's been responsible for.
0: I think that's a great point to end this conversation. So thank you very much, uh, Chris, for joining me in this uh, podcast. And uh, I... I, I have learned a lot and I hope that my audience will also, you know, again, from our discussion. So thanks a lot.
1: Thank you, Jaffer. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate yeah. it.